This is a unique podcast exploring the criminal justice system and those involved and affected. We'll educate and expose the public as well as potential jurors to what takes place behind the scenes of those who are facing the system. Your host owns a litigation support firm called Justice Technology Professionals, and he works on criminal and civil cases offering support to defendants and counsel. What you're about to hear is an open dialogue, opening the minds to the public, to what takes place in reality, as opposed to what you think takes place. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Justice Tech Pros Podcast. Here's your host, Dominic Crea. Greetings, listeners. Welcome to another episode. Today I'm going to be touching a bit on several topics uh, that has been kind of the theme of late. I'd like to dive into a few different things because each segment really wouldn't take that much time as it could only be explored so much. So I just wanted to combine them to give one episode rather than a bunch of little mini episodes. Uh, The first thing I wanted to talk about was a journalist, an investigative journalist that I mentioned and I even put his work on the JTP podcast website. His name is Bill Moshi. Uh, I, I enjoy his work. I enjoy his articles. It's very informative, very enlightening. So if you want to read them, you could go to jtppodcast.com and you'll see a section called uh, a JTP must read and you could download a lot of his articles and his past work. He was a big um, investigative journalist I believe in the 90s, early 90s, mid 90s, around there. And one thing I just wanted to focus on in one of his articles, which carried over because I started to just research it, it was an interesting topic. He touched on the budget that the federal government uses for their informant program. And I was just going through some of these numbers, and I tell you, it's it's eye-opening. Um... In one of his articles, he talks about how, and I'm just going to paraphrase just to give the gist. I find it boring just to sit here and read an article. People usually zone out. I know I do. If somebody's just reading an article, I don't have the attention span to follow along with the article. I'd rather just read it myself. So I want to um, uh, just touch on a few things that I feel will make the point that I'm trying to focus on. And I don't think the public is aware of the amount of money and the tactics used for these informant uh, programs that they set up, the witness, the witness programs. Um, I was just jumping around and reading some of his, uh, some of the figures, and just to give you an idea how it, it jumped, dr- jumps and continues to jump dramatically. In 1974, he says the government spent 3.1 million uh, on 647 people who were admitted to the program that year. That's for the witness protection program. By 1982, the budget was 28.4 million. Then you go to between 1989 and 1992, the program spent 138 million. So you're starting to see this rise, little by little rise, and it, and it keeps going up back then. So I wanted to try to find some updated numbers. And what I was able to find. They don't really list the, the, the budget where you could access it. I'm sure that's purposeful so people don't get astonished by the amount of money that they spend. But I did find an article 
In 2014, it was in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And it is, uh, and, and what's funny about that is I believe that Bill Moshi also wrote for the uh, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. So it seems like, it seems like this paper really focuses on those, those things. So I commend them for that because they're putting out a lot of uh, figures and facts. This article was from February 5th, 2015. Again, it's from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. It's titled Federal Agencies. Payments to confidential informants increase. So you could Google that if you wanted to read it. And I just found this, these numbers, crazy. I mean, they go into, um, I want to read you, just so you get an idea of the type of numbers these that, uh, that goes on. And that is dedicated and allocated to a budget for the federal informant program. I'm going to read a little, a little of it in sentences and... Uh, segments just because the guy lays it out and it's just clear clearer that way he starts out by basically by saying federal programs that people that pay people to tell on others awarded around half a billion dollars during 2014 so if you remember when i was talking about in the 90s what was it like 53 million here we are 2014 we're at half a billion dollars that the federal program pay people to tell on others half a billion dollars the bulk of the disclosed awards went to whistleblowers. Their more shadowy cousins, confidential informants, got tens of millions, including $28.8 million in payments from a single Department of Justice fund, according to a report sent to Congress on January 29th. So you're talking half a billion dollars for the program. Then you're talking about $28 million in payments just from a single Department of Justice fund. I mean, the amount of money is ridiculous and in the article it goes on to say how defense attorneys sometimes argue that tying informants pay to seizures perverts the process because it goes on to talk about how uh informants who work whose work led directly to seizures got a piece of it almost they got um i'll read a i'll read a line of that it says informants who work directly to seizures got 16.8 million from the program why 12 million went to sources whose work didn't lead directly to criminal assets so when they lead to to assets and seizures they actually get a boost they get more money so i don't know you could just see how this all plays out it's all it's big money people are getting paid big dollars so what happens when there's money involved? As the defense attorney says, it's it's tainting it. It's perverting the process. Because now if they could get somebody who has assets and has items of value that can be seized, it gives a boost to the informants to want to tell on specific people because they could get a piece of that. And it just gives severe motivation and agenda. You're talking big dollars. And when you hear these mo the amount of money being thrown around, half a billion dollars, just for a program to promote and push people to inform and to blow the whistle, as they put it, people need to step back and think about that. Because it does taint the process. Without the money involved and without that kind of motivation, one would think when you're dealing with an informant, it could be that they're looking to turn over a new leaf or for whatever reason they do want to uh, 
um, give information up. Now, when you add this kind of money into the equation, to me anyway, it changes the game. If This almost gives somebody an out where they may not even have any information. They may research this. They may see the amount of money that the government throws at informants, and they just decide, hey, you know what? I'm doing a lot of bad things. I don't want to go to jail. Let me make up some stories. Let me get a piece of that money. Let me become a government informant and get a piece of that money. And the reason why I harp on that is dealing directly with lying informants. When I know they're lying, I've seen it played out in case and the clients I've defended on my father's case. We know they're lying based on the discovery, based on the evidence, based on relationships. We just know when somebody's lying, uh, when you have discussions with the client and they don't even know these people and so on and so forth. But now when you see this type of money in the background, it, it almost puts the pieces of the puzzle together as to why they just decided to lie one day, why they decided to throw these lies around. Initially, obviously, I just looked at it more simplistic where they just didn't want to do the time for their own crimes. Uh, a lot of these informants were junkies. And I use the word junkie because to me, there's a very big difference between being a, a drug addict, somebody who's addicted to drugs and has a legitimate problem and they need help, and a junkie. For me, anyway, they're two different terms. A drug addict is somebody I sympathize with, somebody that I hope they do get the help they need, uh, somebody that just needs a shot sometimes where or an opportunity to get their life together, and I empathize with that. A junkie, I do not. For me, a junkie is somebody who's just a low life. They, they are addicted to drugs, and they're doing low-life degenerate things while while feeding their habit. They'll lie, they'll steal, they'll do whatever. Some really horrible, horrible crimes. They'll inform and they'll lie while they're informed all, all for their habit at all to get over on people. And again, that's just me personally. I see it as two different things. You have a junkie and you have a drug addict. I'm not talking about somebody who's addicted to drugs. I'm not talking about a drug addict. I'm talking about when you're dealing with a junkie who will do anything for money, do anything that they're told to put themselves in a better position. So you you see that play out. You see the amount of money being thrown at them. And there was another article I was reading. Give me one second. I just want to pull up the gist of that. This other article is called How the FBI Conceals Its Payments to Confidential Sources. A classified policy guide creates opportunities for agents to disguise payments as reimbursements or offer informants a cut of seized assets. And that's from an online media source called TheIntercept.com. And that's the name of the, uh, of the article. And that was written by a Trevor Aronson, and it was January 31st, 2017. And he goes into... Uh, a pretty well-written and, and laid-out article just about um, how they do conceal payments and how it is a classified policy so people could never really understand the gravity of it and what goes on. And there's almost, he has a heading that's called the FBI secret rules. So this is all done out of the public side. So we really don't know how the money's allocated, how it's spent on these informants. But we do know that it's big money and it's a huge motivating factor for the informants or for anybody just to make up stories to get on that bandwagon and start making some money. 
that the federal government is dishing out based on having an informant testify or make up stories about a target that they select. It's a big motivating factor. And it goes on to cite a case in California courtroom September 2014. Defense attorney Jeffrey Aaron pressed an FBI informant named Muhammad Muhammad Hamid about the hundreds of thousands of dollars in payments he received from the government. So this guy got hundreds of thousands of dollars for the government for being an informant. And it goes on. Uh, again, I don't want to bore you guys. It mentions a bunch of different individuals, different amounts of money. But it's all big money. He's talking about there was another FBI informant. He received $96,000 for his work in the Newberg, in the Newberg 4 case. This Nassim Khan collected $230,000 in a sting in California. Big, big money. Big money. And, and that's why I find it very confusing when these informants are on the stand and the prosecution takes a lot of time to convince the jury that they're, they're not getting any gains from it. No benefit. If you don't call money and paying bills and insurance and places to live, if you don't call that a benefit, what do they classify as a benefit? For me personally, I I would consider getting all those things paid, all my bills paid, money in my pocket, big money in my pocket. I, I would call that a benefit. And if you read trial transcripts, you'll see what I'm talking about. They repeatedly harp on that, where they'll try to bring up they haven't received the benefit and they're fearful for their life. And they really try to pay to paint a picture that is not that accurate. I even spoke about on my last episode how you could counteract the whole argument about a lot of these informants being fearful of their life just based on the conduct currently going on on YouTube and their podcasts. But I just wanted to throw some numbers out there without boring you guys because it is important and to me, it was eye-opening. I honestly didn't realize it was that much money. I didn't realize we were talking half a billion dollars and and payments of 230000 I know in the last case I was part on, don't get me wrong, they, they got we were adding up a lot of the money, and, and on the cross-examination, we hit a lot of the witnesses with the amount of money they received, and it was hundreds of thousands. Someone got 200 and something thousand, and then on top of that, when you investigate the witnesses prior to trial, you're finding out how they're even committing crimes while they're working for the government. And that's another topic entirely. That's something I may dive into, how a lot of these informants still commit crimes while they're working for the government. They're still committing fraud. They're rob, robbing people, robbing uh, places. There's a lot. There's a lot of different charges and that all kind of gets swept under the rug. That Bill Moshe's articles, he, he talks about a lot about that. And he cites a lot of criminal acts that were committed while these informants are working for the government. So those things just, it was important to me when I was reading it. And I just wanted to share it because I don't think, I know I didn't. I, I didn't really have a full grasp of the amount of money that goes on. And I don't think the public does and the fact that this is a secret classified policy is even more disturbing. You don't really know how much is being spent, where it's being spent. Uh, I, I believe that's a little... Uh, to me, I don't know how in the United States that's acceptable. I think P- 
people, taxpayers, and have a right to understand where money's going, how money is going towards law enforcement, how it's being allocated. I think that's important. People want to know. This way they could weigh. Also, it's important for trial. It's important to know these numbers so the jury understands how much money the government is giving these informants because they could paint it any way you want. Money is a big motivator. So you can't minimalize that. If there's big bucks at play, you got to put that out. And the jury needs to be aware of that because they need to understand the motivation of money. And I don't think anybody out there doesn't understand that connection. By them kind of glazing over it, it's doing a disservice and it's not being honest. It's not showing full transparency. And that needs to be done when people are on trial for their lives. should be fully transparent. The other thing I wanted to touch on, which came to mind because of the timing of two two different events. Within my, my location recently, I found out there was one little headline in the paper. There was a pedophile who was arrested uh, locally, and it made one little headline. And this guy apparently was taking pictures of kids, a real degenerate piece of garbage, taking pictures of kids, and he had all kinds of degenerate stuff on his computer. And there was one little headline about it, and I live locally, and I was just trying to find it. I wanted to see where the person was located, what kind of impact it had on my community. And you almost had to dig to find it. And the way I even heard about it wasn't through reading it in the news. Uh, A neighbor told me about it. So then I started searching for it, and I could only find one or two stories about it. And then simultaneously, there was... A recent big um, arrest, an organized crime arrest, and it had to make every paper that I looked at, from the Daily Post to, from the New York Post, I'm sorry, to the Daily News, and I believe the New York Times had a write-up about it. Every outlet you could think of, it was everywhere, organized crime, organized crime. And I sit back and I just ask myself, what would a person, the public, be more concerned about? A pedophile living next to them and want to know the details on that, make sure their kids are safe, their community is safe, or a bunch of 80-year-old men getting round up in an organized crime an organized crime case. I'm not saying what makes uh, bigger headlines, and I'm not saying what gets promotions. That's obvious. What I'm saying is what is the community more concerned about? Who are you more concerned living next to? To me, the answer is clear. And I, I don't. It just goes to show how these things are painted. A pedophile doesn't get a big headline. I guess that's not a, a concern for the community according to the media. But organized crime, people who are in their seventies and eighties, that's that's a big headline. Everybody needs to be aware of that. I just find that play. I think priorities are a little screwed up, because I would think the community would be much more concerned about somebody who's a direct threat to their children to the children living in the area. But that's not how it plays out. We see it time and again. Just look look at what the big headlines are always geared at. Yet the community has more of a concern based on what affects them or what impacts them directly. And some of this news you can't even find. You're not even aware of it. And it all just goes back to what I continue to talk about. They use these headlines... That's all done intentionally because they use the headlines to paint the defendants guilty before they even go to trial. 
They start talking about their past or past crimes, what they're being accused of, long drawn out articles. And that's to taint the jury. But yet you have a pedophile who will be going for trial. There's no, there's no exposing his past or exposing what he did or what's going on to perhaps taint the jury. I don't know. I just, I don't see, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. Sometimes I think I'm living on another planet because these things that seem very commonsensical, very much in the interest of the public, don't play out that way. And it's clear cut to me what they're doing, but I don't think the public sees that. I think they get drawn into the headlines. They get drawn into the headlines because people are fascinated with that whole genre of organized crime and uh, between the movies, the blogs I always talk about, and the forums, all that nonsense, these documentaries and all that, people are more drawn to that, so they want to read about it. So they plaster it all over the internet, all over print, and people stay engaged with that as opposed to real, real threats that could impact a community, uh, could impact a society. And I, I find that telling. It had... And I just wanted to talk about that because it just happened. It was like two weeks ago. I heard about this pedophile degenerate. And then I, I had a search to find any articles about it. But yet I'm getting hit every day with all these articles about this big organized crime bust with 70-year-old men and whatnot. And again, I know people try to say, oh, you're glorifying the mob. Well, if that's what I just did, you're not too bright. Because that's not what I'm saying at all. It has nothing to do with glorifying anything has nothing to do with saying, oh, these guys are innocent. I'm not even touching on that. That's not even part of what I'm talking about. So if you pull that from what I just said, you just have your own agenda and you're just trying to push that to twist the theme of the show. That That's irrelevant. All I'm saying are the facts. And the facts are that the headlines of recent were plagued with organized crime, Involving 70 and 80 year old defendants. And yet. A local headline that I would want to read about. Just to see what's going on in my community. You have to search to find it. Where it's pretty much a direct threat. Or directly impacts the community as a whole. I would believe people would want to read about that. And see what's going on. Again to make sure. Just something you want to be aware of. You have kids, neighborhood kids. Whatever it may be. You want to be aware of that. But that's not how it plays out. That's doesn't get the clicks, that doesn't get the reads. And it's just, that's the point I'm trying to make. I'm not going into, I'm not going into the whole glorification that people try to use as a scapegoat. That's not even the point at all. That's completely irrelevant. Didn't even touch on that. So I just want to be crystal clear on the point I'm trying to make. And I believe people understand those who are open-minded and are listening to what I'm saying and not just shutting it out and picking and choosing what to exploit will understand the point I'm trying to get across. And it's just something to keep in mind when you see these headlines. And if you do get selected for a juror, you want to try to weigh the facts of the case. Forget about the headlines. Forget about what's being written. Forget about past events, past crimes that they already served their time for. You got to really focus on the facts of the case and the evidence tying the defendants to the charges. That's what's most important. If you do that, then you're doing your job as a jury. That's as a juror. That's how it goes. And if somebody's guilty, they're guilty based on the evidence. That's 
that's how the justice system works. But you just see the repeated attempts to get a guilty verdict before they're even in the courtroom with these headlines. They're really just trying to get these verdicts before they even step into a courtroom. And then that's why, you know, it's all part of the game. They get the headlines, the defendant sees all the headlines, the defendant starts to think, well, how am I going to get a fair trial when I'm constantly in the news? They're talking about crimes that I didn't commit or crimes I may have committed in the past, whatever it may be. They're basically painting them guilty. They're running the trial in the media. That's what they're doing. So a lot of times you get defendants that look at it from the point of view of how am I going to get a fair trial? I'm already dead to rights in the in the media. Every juror is going to see it. The juror starts Googling my name. They're going to see all these things. How am I going to get a fair trial? No jury, juror is going to give a fair trial. And unfortunately, that leads to a lot of people playing where maybe they were innocent. But they're just looking at the whole picture and they don't see that they can get a fair trial based on the games being played and based on the tactics being used. So it really is something to think about. And I got to say, I got a comment from somebody that really made me know this podcast is in the right direction. And the gentleman said something along the lines that he wished he came across the podcast earlier because he was on a grand jury, on a couple grand juries, and he would ask different questions if he heard the podcast. And honestly, that's exactly what I'm trying to do here. That comment really summed up what I'm trying to do. It's just, I'm not trying to convince anybody. You go to my first episode to now, what is it, 68? I say the same thing. I don't need anybody to think like me. I'm not trying to have anybody align with my way of thinking. I just want the public to understand all the elements at play. So as that gentleman said, he could ask the right questions. He could get clarity on things he may have not been aware of prior. And that'll help him or her make a better decision uh, whether to indict somebody. And that's a serious role. The grand jury, it's a serious role. And a lot of these jurors, unfortunately, they, they choose to indict not by fault of their own. A lot of times they're not aware of the questions to ask. They're not aware of outside elements at play. They're not aware of things that go on. And I spoke about this on an episode. The grand jury on a federal level is, to me, it's completely out of whack because not only are you only here on one side, when they're in the grand jury, it's only the FBI agents talking, possibly the informants talking. There's no defense side to that at all. So if an FBI agent is ill-informed, say they're dealing with the lying informant, and I have to believe the FBI agent isn't aware that the guy's lying or the girl's lying, they just believe them at their word. So they're just relaying that to the grand jury. But if it's built on lies, what does that tell you? That tells you the whole grand jury was tainted from the beginning. It's all built on lies. So it's a very slippery slope, and what, what really boggles my mind on a federal level, you're not entitled to even read the minutes of a grand jury indictment. So the defense can't even look at that to see if it's tainted, to see if the lies, if there were lies, and then notify the judge and say, Your Honor, this is, they lied. This isn't accurate. This case should be thrown out. On a state level, you get the minutes. So they have to be much more careful on a state level. When they go for an indictment, they really have to have their ducks in a row because the defense does get the minutes, is able to compare it to discovery, is able to see if it's a strong indictment, a weak indictment, if lies were made, if false testimony was given. 
on a federal level, level, the best you could do is you put in a motion. You could put in a motion to see the grand jury minutes, or you could put in a motion to have the judge look at them in camera, which basically means the judge reviews the minutes, just to see if it lines up with the charges and with the discovery. So if you're finding a lot of discovery, which happened in our in our in our, the past case I was involved with my father, a lot of the claims they were making at the bail hearing of evidence that they had did not correspond to the discovery that they turned over. So we knew that there was lies being said at the grand jury level because of the indictment and because of the charges and it just didn't add up to what we were getting in. And we put in a motion to review the grand jury minutes, but of course that was denied. And you would just figure that's a given. I, I don't, to me, unless somebody tells me differently and I could see it logically, that just tells me they don't want you to have those minutes because there are some shady things going on and they got their indictment and that's all that matters. If it's a legitimate indictment and a strong indictment, it shouldn't matter whether or not you have the defense or the judge read the minutes because everything in there is is accurate. Everything in there was based on the indictment. The only, for me, it tells me being it's so hard to get those minutes Something something uh, is going on that isn't isn't proper, and that's again another problem, another big problem in the system. And I know there's a lot of reform going on to try to change that, and I hope one day it will come where it's similar to the state. When you get indicted, you automatically get those grand jury minutes. This way, the defense could start preparing, see what was said in the grand jury, compare it to the discovery, and see how legitimate the indictment truly is. But until then, it's always going to be a problem. People just don't know what's said in the grand jury, and you're fighting blindly at the beginning. You're fighting blindly at inception because you don't know what you're being accused of and by who you're being accused of. You have to wait as things play out, and you get the rolling discovery, which comes in at different segments. And a lot of times you could get, on on the last case, we got discovery right up to, like I believe it was two or three weeks before trial, we were still getting discovery in. Think how fair that is. You want to do an investigation. You you get informed of a new witness that is going to be joining and testifying. And you have minimal time to investigate that witness, find out what they're doing. I don't know how that's fair either. There should be dates. And they're making a lot of changes of that on the state level. I know in New York now there's big changes. And I spoke about that on a past episode, which is great. I mean, that's phenomenal. On the New York level... A state level, you have to get your discovery within a certain amount of days of being indicted. They have to turn over the discovery, which is the way it should be. To prepare properly, you need to know the evidence that's against you, right? You can't just be guessing all the way up to trial. And then as you're getting hit with these things, start investigating them, looking into them, uh, trying to disprove them, discredit them. It really is a game and it's so one-sided. People don't get it until they go through it. But just look at it from the outside looking in, if you're fighting something, but you're not getting all of the factors affecting or impacting that fight, how can you fight something blindly? Just look at it like that. It's really hard to do, right? It's very hard to fight something blindly and to guess and then wait to see what comes out and then wait to see right before trial and then rush. When you think about it, I know we had a few audio clips given a couple weeks before trial. We had a rush to get those transcribed, see what's on them, see if they affect our client. People really don't understand that the strategy 
is quite difficult when you're up against that, when you're up against what's called rolling discovery and it's coming in at different times. It's very difficult to fight that type of battle. It would only be fair for everybody to have everything on the table from inception. This way they have a shot. And when you think about it, from day one you're already at a disadvantage as a defendant. Between resources and money, you can't compete with the government on that level. So you got to try to make up for it with hard work and investigation and strategy and tactics. But they're limiting doing that as well by giving the discovery in drips and drabs. When you look at the whole picture, it's it's scary. And you could really start to see, because I know a lot of people say, oh, why would somebody take a plea if they're not guilty? You know, when, on the outside, when you just look at that concept, yeah, okay, the concept makes sense. You're not guilty, why take a plea? But when you start looking at all these different elements and factors that impact the case, money, resources, the media, not getting all the discovery, not knowing what you're up against, you really start to see how people will take a plea when they're guilty. And I, I read a bunch of statistics on that on one of the episodes of all the innocent people who took pleas just to, to get out, just to get it over with, I should say, just to do their time and move on with their life because what they were facing was too extreme to risk it based on the factors going against them, based on all of these things I'm talking about. You could see why a reasonable person would weigh all that and then it's almost a uh, decision of the less of the two evils. That's what it boils down to. And you could see the logic in that when you look at everything. When you're not looking at everything and, and you keep it very plain and you simply use the statement, why would you plead guilty if you're not guilty? Well, then, yeah, when you use it that way and you make it so black and white, you try to win the argument with that statement. But you're leaving out a ton of elements that impact that decision. So you have to weigh all those things and you have to think about that a lot. And it's unfortunate when you start to think about it, it makes you wonder how many people were really innocent, but they were just too nervous to go to trial because they felt they couldn't get a fair trial, whether it's being blasted in the media, whether it's certain stereotypes impacting them, whether it's not getting all the discovery, they don't know what they're up against, whether they ran out of resources, they don't have money to keep going to get a quality defense team. There's so many different factors you must consider. And if you do consider that, then you could kind of see the average person can see the logic in that. The open-minded individual who uses reason and uses common sense and analyzes things can see it. They can see why somebody would plead guilty just to get it over with. And that kind of leads me into um, the next topic I want to touch on that I'm hoping some defendants will take heed to and look to go in that direction. And it has to do with this discovery that I was talking about. It's very important, and I've seen it play out, when the discovery comes in, you truly need to dive into it as quickly as you can. And I can't stress that enough, because unfortunately, and I've witnessed it firsthand, you do get a lot of lawyers who they like to schedule a ton of cases so they don't devote the necessary time needed until the 13th hour. And there's no reason for that. You want to start diving into the discovery the second you get it. Some attorneys will say, oh, we got time, we got time. The truth is you don't have time. Listen to what I'm telling you. On a big case, if it's a RICO case, you don't have the time. 
it's going to be a lot of information. It's going to be a lot of audio tapes. It's going to be, sometimes they have video. It's going to be going through a lot of paperwork. You need that time to compile everything. If there's audios, you're going to need that time to listen to them, transcribe what's relevant, transcribe what could help you, compare it to the government's version of the transcripts. There's a lot to be done. And that was one thing that frustrated me, certain lawyers at the beginning, uh, just working on a different speed. And I'm not knocking them at all. It's just different. For me, I look at things differently, especially not being a lawyer. I look at things where you got to defend the person coming to you. You got to defend the client at all costs. So to do that, you have to start working on that case immediately. It doesn't matter that there's a lot of time. Yeah, it takes time to go to trial. It takes years. I understand that. But guess what? It takes years to go through this stuff. The last case, there was like nine terabytes of information. That's a lot of data. There was over 80,000 audio files, a ton of data, phone tapes, wiretaps, ton of information you got to go through, pictures, a ton of surveillance photos, a ton of documents. There's a lot of stuff to go through, to sort through, and you need that time. I don't even remember the amount of transcripts we turned over. It was a, hundreds, a lot of transcripts. And then with motions and whatnot, you need a lot of stuff. Then you got to get the bail hearing minutes. Compared. There's a lot involved. And my only point is, to the defendants out there, to anybody listening who knows a defendant, they have to push their attorney to really jump into that discovery right away. And there's a lot of good attorneys who are on the same page as myself. And when we talk, same strategy. It's you got to get in there. You got to jump in. Whoever could help, part of the defense team could help but there's a lot of sorting to do. When they send you the discovery, and to me, that's another tactic. It's not like it's all organized and everything's late. It's not like that at all. It's basically a hard drive with all kinds of information on it, audios. They're not really organized. They're not in order. They're not, they don't tell you who it's pertaining to. So it's a lot of organization, and that's what my firm does. We organize all that. We house all that. We put it on a database. We convert it so it's searchable. We uh, sort it in chronological order or defendant order, depending on which strategy we're using. But my point is, that needs to be done. That needs to be done. It's vital to do that because you're going to need that time to sit back, digest the information, identify what helps your defendant, what hurts your defendant, and really dive in. And although it sounds like they'll use, oh, well, trial's a while away, I look at it, well, good thing it's a while away because we're going to need that time. Not, well, let's keep pushing it back, pushing it back. We have time. You can't look at it that way. You're not going to put on a proper defense if you procrastinate like that and you just put things off. You're not going to put on a, a proper defense. And I understand. I totally get lawyers have different clients. I totally understand that. But that's where teams come into play. That's where if you have family that can help you, anybody that can help you work on it, organizations such as myself that could start doing the work Start getting things in order. You have to start looking at it that way. And you got to start diving in. So if you take nothing else from this episode, any defendants listening, trust me, the second you start getting that, you start getting that discovery, please start diving into it. Start doing a count even. See how many audios you have to deal with. And you could also see the amount of minutes each audio has. So you give yourself an idea how many minutes you're facing to go through with the first round of discovery. How many transcripts you're going to have to put together? How many of those audios impact you or don't impact you? 
or the document you're looking through. There's a lot to do, a lot of sorting, a lot of going through it. So I know they act like, oh, we have all this time. Some attorneys do. We have all this time. You really don't. And you need to dive in and you need to grab your team. And sometimes you got to push your attorney to really take notice and to focus on these things. Because it comes sooner than you think. So I just wanted to touch on that a little bit just to hopefully help anyone out there listening who may be facing something. I was asked recently for my opinion on some a couple cases that came my way just to get an idea of the amount of time and the amount of energy that's going to be needed to go through the discovery. And honestly, on the first round, it's already a lot of stuff. And sometimes you get 20, 30, 40 rounds of discovery. It all depends on the case. So when you get a first round and it's pretty voluminous, you know you're in for the long haul and you know there's a lot of work to do. Even though sometimes the attorneys don't look at it that way, if you're defendant or part of the defense team, you got to dive in. That's, that's my only advice. Just start getting what you can as early as you can. Start getting a handle on what you're looking at. Even if at the very least, if you're just tallying information, if you're just tallying up the amount of documents, the amount of audio files, the amount of video files, the amount of minutes on each, even if you're just doing a tally, just do that so you have an idea in your head and that'll help you start to schedule things help you schedule so you have the strongest defense and you have the time needed. A lot of times you have to hire an investigator to, to investigate certain witnesses or informants. You need the time for that. You need the time to put that together. So these cases take a lot of time and I, I get frustrated as, um, as a non-lawyer when I see certain lawyers doing these things. It gets very frustrated because I want to tell them, what are you, what are you waiting for? There's a lot to be done here. We got to dive in. There's a lot to be done. We have to delegate to the appropriate staff members. There's a lot that needs to be done so this defendant gets the best pace, best defense possible. Because that's how I feel. When I take on a client, I have to give them my all, otherwise I'm not going to take it. If I can't give it 100%, I'm not taking the case. If I'm too busy with something else, I just won't even take it. The person deserves 100% of your time and energy because it's 100% of their life on the line. So when somebody's life's on the line and they're paying... Somebody to give them a service, they deserve it 100%. They, they have the highest stakes at play, and they deserve all the attention and the best defense they can get with the means necessary. So I wanted to talk about that. The last thing I want to talk about, and I wish I could really go into more detail because I'll be able to rip apart this moron, but this Frank Pesqua, when I'm listening to his Vlad, he goes into a couple points just to emphasize his uh, mental capacity and how his lies just spew out. One comment he made a couple times, he keeps saying, apparently, he wants to make up a story that when my brother negotiated his plea, my father didn't want him to take the plea. That's a complete lie, number one. He has no idea what he's talking about. And I won't even get into that, but that's a complete and utter lie, complete nonsense just lying through his teeth. But look at it again. Don't take my word for it. Look at common sense. The guy's an informant, right? He's in the government. He's in the program. How does he know what anybody's saying? How does he know this supposed conversation a father had with his son? How does he know that? He's an informant. Who's he talking to? Who could he possibly get that, that intimate information from where you're trying to voice your opinion on a father's discussion with his son. 
how, how could you be that arrogant to think that the public are morons where they won't at least ask themselves, how the hell does he know what a father said to his son? It's lunacy. This It just goes to show the type of lies. <clears throat> and also, again, I wish I could get into it in more detail because I would blow it out of the water. But he makes it how he was, I don't know, lately he's making it how he was like, knew my brother well and he talked to my brother. Just to give you an idea, ladies and gentlemen, this was a 20-year investigation. They had all the cell phone records. There wasn't one phone call, not one. You could pull the trial minutes. Not one phone call that had my brother's phone and his phone ever in the 20-year investigation. They never spoke once on the phone. So you know somebody so well, you didn't have one conversation, not one, not one call to his phone. Forget it. Lies after lie. And the last lie of, of thousands that I want to touch on, only because I could touch on this one, because this we got with our own investigation. This is no part of protective order. has nothing to do with that. What we did is the defense team. We got the video. Okay? We got the actual video. The police cam. The dashboard cam. Of him being arrested in Mississippi. Now, on Vlad, he goes on and says he didn't turn informant in Mississippi. Well, I beg to differ because I'm looking at it right now on a video, him talking to the cops, and from left field, he starts bringing up people he can inform at and how he's, he's this supposed guy in New York and he could deliver information on big names. And, of course, he's mentioning everybody's name, mentions my father's name, all, all, all in... Uh, all during this like interrogation for him getting caught with junk, he's a junkie, uh, with his junk, with whatever else he got caught with, I think it was a gun, whatever the hell it was. So this happened the night of his arrest. If you listen to his Vlad interview, don't take my word for it, listen to it. He says, oh no, I didn't become an informant then, they moved me up to Putnam first, and then I got caught dealing drugs in Putnam, I became an informant. Once again, his life falls flat on the face because the facility... They sent them to in Putnam is for informants. All, all informants go to that facility. So what happened was he said all this nonsense in Mississippi and they transferred him up to transferred him up to Putnam. And now think about that. So now he's it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Now he's an informant. And again, I want to find out because I'd like to actually put that footage up. And I think I can because we got that through our own investigative work that had nothing to do with the protective order. So I think I could actually play his footage and I'd like to do that so everybody sees what I'm talking about. I'm going to talk to, you know, the legal team just to make sure it can't be twisted and turned into anything. So I'll find out. I'll see what they say. But it's clear as day. In his own words, he gets arrested. He's sitting on the car. They're searching his car. And he just starts spewing nonsense the second he gets arrested about what he could give to not have to worry about being held accountable for his junk uh, junk dealing and his habits and his carrying a gun. Right away, his, his wheels, his gears are working. So that's complete nonsense, the story he made up. But it goes back to my other point. So now he's going to work as an informant. They ship him up to Putnam. What does he do? He's selling drugs in jail. So now here you have a federal informant committing more crimes selling drugs in jail. It's insane, and honestly, I'm hoping when this is all over and this protective order is lifted, I could really, really show 
and back up what I'm saying and really close the curtain on his web of lies because that's all it is, a bunch of BS from a nobody. That's all it is, just a nobody who was frustrated with his own life, so had to create tall tales to make himself something he never was. And the funny part is the tales he tells are all degenerate stuff. Junk bag stuff. No wonder why nobody wanted anything to deal with this guy. He was he was a junkie from inception. Now, to further... I, I want to read something. Because, again, and this isn't normally like me. I try to keep it more general. But his lies got under my skin. And, again, he makes disparaging remarks at my brother's expense. And I take offense to that. So, I, I, I want to... Uh, I respond in my own way to that. And I want to... My brother was actually given a polygraph test, okay? This was submitted to the court. You could even look it up. It's document 547-1. It was filed 12-418. And the case is 7 colon 17-CR-00089-CS. So you can look it up for yourself. <clears throat> he did a polygraph test by, this guy was part of the FBI himself. He was a special agent for almost 20, over 20 years, 24 years it looks like, who gave polygraph exams on the FBI level. So this guy was the best of the best as far as uh, giving the exam. And he asked my brother a couple questions. And I just want to read you, and my brother passed the polygraph with flying colors. Now we know they're not admitted admissible, but his attorney sent it in anyway because they wanted to show my brother had nothing to do with this nonsense and didn't even know this moron. But I just want to read you the questions and the answers. He was asked, did you direct anyone to murder Michael Meldish? My brother answered no, passed with flying colors. Did you ever meet with anyone and plan the murder of Michael Meldish? My brother answered no. Passed with flying colors. And don't take my word for it. Look it up. It gives the whole scale of deception. And he was completely flying colors. Like I said, couldn't score much higher of being truthful. The other two questions. Did you direct anyone to cause harm to call Alzheimer? That was another charge that actually my father was acquitted of. And this goes back to where I told you about pleading, because my brother, my brother actually pled to this crime, and I'm going to read you the answer. Did you direct anyone to cause harm to call Alzheimer? The answer was no. Passed with flying colors. Were you directed by anyone to cause harm to call Alzheimer? The answer was no. Passed again, flying colors. Okay? Now, I'm not going to get into the whole plea thing. It is what it is, okay? But my point is, four questions he was asked. Passed all of them with flying colors. Now, Pasquale wants to say that my brother told him about the Meldish murder and that nonsense. Well, then how did he pass both of those initial questions about did you ever meet with anyone and plan the murder of Michael Meldish? He said no. He passed with flying colors. How did he do that? Because this Pasquale's lying. That's the bottom line. Now, again, you know, these things aren't admitted to court. I get that. But I just wanted to read it. Take it for what you want. I know a lot of people will harp on how it's not admissible and people could beat a lie detector test. My, my brother isn't a lie detector test expert. It's the first time he ever took that type of test. 
You don't know how to beat tests with all that nonsense, but whatever. As I said, put whatever stock you want into it. I'm not trying to convince anybody. I'm I'm simply just reading what's out there to rebut a lot of the BS that's being put out there by this clown. And that's pretty much all I have to say about that. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope you learned something from it. Until next time. Oh, before I go away, I do want to say I'm getting a lot of new followers, subscribers, and supporters. And I thank everyone. I even got a couple of trolls on my account, which I find funny. It doesn't affect me in the least. I couldn't care what anybody says. Again, I'm not here from day one. I said I'm not here to convince anybody. I'm not here to have people think the way I think. It's not what it's about. So I I really don't care what people have to say. But I do care about the positive ones because I'm glad to at least see a lot of people understand what I'm trying to put out. A lot of people relate to it. And it's helping a lot of people open their mind up a little bit and see things a little differently. And I believe in turn that will help the justice system. We'll have more prepared jurors. I know I know my reach isn't that wide. I don't cast that big of a net. But hopefully, who knows, maybe you get one or two jurors who listen to the show, they remember a few things, and somebody gets a fair trial. And that's all it's about. It's not about finding somebody guilty or not guilty. It's just about getting a fair trial where you're getting a juror who's weighing everything and deciding properly without being influenced and understanding everything. And that's all I try to do here, and I'm going to keep trying to do here. And I appreciate everyone. I appreciate... Appreciate all the subscribers, all the supporters, and that's it for today. Thank you, and until next time. You've been listening to the Justice Tech Pros Podcast with Dominic Crea, one of the most unique podcasts on the internet, discussing the obstacles the defense team faces when trying a case, what goes on behind the scenes during pretrial and motion phase, holding defense attorneys accountable, making sure they're fighting for their clients, the difference between textbook law and how things truly play out in a courtroom, and everything in between. And everything in between. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show and we'll be back soon until then find us on twitter facebook and instagram at justice tech pros to email the show with questions and comments it's podcast at justice tech pros.com till next time this is justice tech pros podcast and dominic crea signing off